Right, um, we're trying something a little different today, and that is that um, Hope Honorahi and Hope Tikiponga are joining us today for the message. Um, and uh, we said that we would start the message at 10 past 10, so that the, the folk up at Tikiponga uh, can start their service and then have the, uh, the message from here. And no, it's not because I've got some sort of delusions of being a tele-evangelist. <laughs> not at all. But again, it's just uh, one of the ways that we can look at, see, of doing a combined service when there are limits on numbers. And it's also a way that um, just maybe next year uh, we've got ways of being able to connect more and be uh, Hope Whangarei together. So I don't know, do I need a thumbs up from the back that, we're, uh, that they're connected? Yeah, okay, they're there. Great, I'll pray and then we'll get underway. And also uh, the folk uh, in, in, the, in the lounge, so all the people of Hope Whangarei, uh, we're gathered together around the Word of God. So let's pray. Loving God, we just thank you for this season where we acknowledge and celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of God in our midst through the birth of a child, a son given. We pray that as we open up your word, you might speak to us and encourage us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Uh, when we lived in Napier, uh, I used to swim. I used to swim 4Ks a day. And after a while, uh, swimming 4Ks a day in a 25-meter pool, uh, you actually get fed up with going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards down a back black line. So I decided I'd take up bike riding. And so every day I used to cycle from our house at West Shore around through Ahareri, that's the port at Napier, and out along marine, the Marine Parade cycle track all the way out to Clyde and then back. And except for the height of summer, I would start in the dark. And at some stage along the journey, the dawn would break over the Pacific Ocean and the sun would rise out of the sea. And on clear days, it was a wondrous golden glow over the blue of the ocean. And on overcast and rainy or stormy days, uh, it would turn the clouds and the dark ocean silver. Either way, the panorama and beauty of countryside and coastline and the city around me would become visible. And the idea of light dawning in the darkness is a very evocative and emotional picture for us. It's one of hope and new possibilities. It can seem as if all the difficulty, suffering and strife, all the broken relationships and the brokenness and evil of the world and within us are like the pitch black of night. Maybe you've had nights where that's manifest, where you simply toss and turn, and the night seems to go on forever, and you struggle with um, things that you've done wrong, or decisions you have to make, or the stress and strain of life has left you just there, you know, just unable to sleep, tossing and turning. Or even as Jeff New spoke about a couple of weeks ago, that you find yourself wrestling with God. The night seems 
endless. But then, but then, the dawn comes. The sun rises. And there is possibilities. And there is hope. And Psalm 30 verse 5 sums that up well for our experience and also for the context of the passage from Isaiah that we are looking at today when it says, For his, God's, anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So let's have a look at the context of Isaiah chapter 9, the passage that we so rightly associate with the coming of Christ and we use at Advent. In that, uh, and, and the, uh, the context is that for Jerusalem and Judea, it was a time of doom and gloom and judgment. They had sinned and rebelled against God. Uh, Ahaz was the king, and 2 Kings 16 tells us that he was a king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He even, even stooped to sacrificing his son in the fire, worshipping one of the gods of the nations that had been driven out of Israel. Judah, the southern kingdom, was in a difficult position politically. The northern kingdom, that's Israel and Syria, had formed an alliance, and they were getting ready to come up against Judah and overpower them. And Ahaz had some, decision, Ahaz had some decisions to make. He could form an alliance with either Assyria or Egypt, that's the superpowers of his day, think today China or the US, or he could simply trust in God to save his people. This is where Isaiah's prophecies from chapter 7 to chapter 9 come into play. Through the birth of three children, Isaiah speaks to the king and tells him that he should trust in God to deal with Israel and Syria, not to look to other gods or to look to an alliance with other kingdoms, but to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one who is I am who I have said I am. And in chapter 7, we have Isaiah's son, Shear Jeshub, which was to remind the king that a remnant shall remain, that God would save Judah. Then we have Emmanuel, a child born to a virgin or a maiden, reminding Ahaz that God is with us, that he and Judah can trust in God to save them. A name and a prophecy which Matthew tells us is fulfilled in Christ. And then finally in chapter 8, Isaiah's other son, and you wouldn't want to be a child of Isaiah's because, boy, they get some strange names. Mahir Shalal Hash Baz. I wonder if he just got called Baz for short. I don't know. Which means quickly to the plunder. Because, you see, it was a sign to Ahaz that before the boy could say mother or father, that Syria and Israel would fall that God would save his people, and that Ahaz should trust in God. Ahaz, of course, ignores Isaiah, and he makes an alliance with the Assyrians. He gives them all the gold and silver in the temple, 
and sets up an altar in Damascus to honor the Assyrian king. You can see how a jealous God would be upset with that. Judah finds itself condemned and under God's judgment in the gloom and dark of the situation and their own rebellion against God. And Isaiah now turns to give them hope. To give them hope. Hope which again is wrapped up in the birth of a child. Hope which is again wrapped up in the very nature and love and concern of God for his people. So let's have a look at the message. Verse 1 tells us that the land that is humbled will again be lifted up and honored. God's judgment is not his final word. The areas mentioned here, the land of Zebulun and Nephetali and Galilee of the nations, that's the area where Israel usually first met the rest of the world that was a place of mixed settlement of Jew and Gentile. And the way of the sea beyond the Jordan would be honored. These areas had been the first to fall to Assyrian domination, and they would be first to see the light of God's salvation. Maybe jumping the gun just a little bit here, you know, we had it read to us today. Matthew quotes this verse, not at Jesus' birth, but at the beginning of his preaching ministry, in that very area of Galilee. Here is the light dawning amongst the gloom in the very places that Isaiah had prophesied in the way that he'd said it would happen. And this is the message that Isaiah had brought, which starts in verse 2. A light dawning in the darkness. Light, of course, in Scripture is used to describe and talk of God. God would bring His light where there was only darkness, where there was only sin and death and judgment. God would bring His light. In verse 3, instead of the shrinking and defeat and sorrow and pain of the Assyrian oppression, there would be a prospering of the nation and an increase of their joy. And the metaphors that are used to describe this joy are that of the joy of the harvest. I'm not a gardener, but I know that there are many gardeners uh, amongst you, and you can relate to that. After the tilling of the soil, the weeding, the watering, Enduring cold snaps where you kind of hope the plants won't be killed and wild winds and those pesky pests. There is the harvest and it's all worth it. The second metaphor is the picture of soldiers dividing up the plunder. War is over. The battle has been won. You know, maybe after unsurmountable odds, maybe uh, after what Winston Churchill called our darkest hours, through pain and sorrow and sacrifice. Finally, it's over and the victory has been won. And maybe we catch a glimpse of the joy that, uh, that Isaiah is, is talking about in those famous photos of the crowds in London and New York's Times Square in 1945 on VE Day and VJ Day when the Second World War finishes. You know, and you just capture the joy that is there. Verse 4 gives us a historical example of how God would bring this reversal, this light in the dark. Isaiah points to the time of Midian uh, when God used Gideon and 300 men with trumpets and torches to rort the army of 10,000 Midianites. You know, uh, the light 
this, this salvation would be as unexpected and so obviously God's doing as it was in the time of Gideon. And the yoke of oppression would be lifted. Now, it's interesting, Assyrian kings uh, often gloated about the heavy yoke that they placed on their conquered kingdoms. And again, you know, looking through the lens of Jesus, we see that this new ruler would also have a yoke, but his way is easy and light. And then verse 5 then gives us an image of an end to war. This light would not use the conventional tools of this world to bring about salvation and restoration. Rather, the image here is of war itself ceasing. You know, all the, all the weapons of war being burnt up in a fire. Then we see that just like Emmanuel was a sign of God's abiding presence, God's light and God's self, salvation was coming through the birth of a child the birth of a son, a new ruler in the line of David. And the words and titles that are given to the son show us that uh, it's not just simply another king in the dynasty, but there's something special and important about this son, this child to be born. He's called the Wonderful Counselor, as opposed to the bad counsel of the kings who had gone before and led Judah down a dis disastrous path into the judgment of God. He's called Mighty God. And while the kings of the nations around Judah were starting to be, were starting to be considered godlike, for Jews there was only one God. And the passage points very much to the Son being the embodiment of Emmanuel, God with us. Everlasting Father. And again, kings were considered to be the fathers of their people. And, uh, but this goes beyond that simply hyperbole, to focus again on the messianic hope of the people. Prince of Peace, the hope of shalom, not just an end to conflict and strife, but the restoration of relationship with God and with one another. A kingdom of peace and prosperity based on God's righteousness and justice. And you know, we often want a kingdom of peace and prosperity but we forget that it has to do with God's righteousness and justice. The two things go hand in hand. This son and his kingdom would be an everlasting one. This king would reign forever. And the passage finishes with an affirmation that this salvation, this light, this new kingdom, this new reign would not be achieved by earthly powers or means, but rather it would be the Lord's doing. And in the NIV, it talks about the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And you know, we, we might think of God as detached and dispassionate, but here we get the picture of a God who is jealous and zealous for His people, is full of passion and compassion for His people, even though they have rebelled against Him and sinned. Uh, and were rightly judged. God was not finished with them. His purposes, His plans, His salvation would be achieved. The light would dawn in the dark. Now, on one level, this passage can be seen to be filled in Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. Uh, in 2 Kings 18, it tells us that he was a good king. In fact, it says there was no king in Judah like him. 
either before him or after him. He returned Judah to following the Lord. He destroyed all the high places that people used to worship other gods. He reinstated proper temple worship. And Isaiah's prophecy could be seen as a birth announcement for this new king, full of hyperbole and hope. While Hezekiah's faithfulness and trust in God is an example of the way Davidic kings should act, and, you know, points us down to this other, possibly this other king, he does not fit the bill. It does not fulfill the, the sort of grandeur of this prophecy. Despite seeing God's miraculous intervention against the Assyrians, uh, Judah and Jerusalem faced turmoil and strife throughout his reign. And after a meeting with envoys from Babylon, where Hezekiah shows them all the, all the temple treasures and all that sort of thing, Isaiah tells them of the impending fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, to which Hezekiah replies with what are his last recorded words, Will there be no peace? and security in my lifetime. Doesn't sound like this new kingdom, does it? We must look beyond Hezekiah. Well, of course, the book of Isaiah as a whole covers the period from the reign of King Ahaz right through the reign of Hezekiah, right to the destruction of Jerusalem in 532 BC, and finishes after chapter 40 with words that look forward to the return from exile and the reestablishment of Jerusalem at that time. And the passage in Isaiah 9 was seen by the people who gathered together the book of Isaiah and, and saw that it was important as part of the hope of what God would do in that restoration time. And the hope for Jerusalem being the capital of a restored and purified Israel. Yet we know from Jerusalem, uh, we know from history that the hopes and aspirations for that restoration uh, didn't eventuate like they thought that they would be, because the times were difficult, because there was still the core problem of the sin of the people of Israel in that time. So this passage became part of the messianic hope of Israel that God would indeed send a son of David to establish the kingdom of God. Now, of course, we, from beyond the birth of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, look back at this passage, and we see Jesus. And Matthew quotes this passage as Jesus starts his ministry in the area which Isaiah had said salvation would first dawn. It points us to the fact that the ultimate fulfillment of this passage is in Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited Son given for our salvation, the light that has come into the world. One of the principles of biblical interpretation is that a passage in the Old Testament can't mean something different to what it means in the, in, from its original context when it's quoted in the New Testament. This passage does exactly that as it is fulfilled in Jesus. You know, you see, we like Judah, like Ahaz, are lost and in the dark because of our sin and our rebellion from God. Like Judah, uh, because we have not listened to God and we've gone our own way, we stand in a place of judgment. But undeserved, unlooked for, not 
by human means. God has shone the light of His salvation into our darkness. As John says in the prelude to his gospel that we had read as a uh, call to worship this morning, and as he introduces Jesus on this vast canvas of eternity, that the true light of the world has come and has been established, not by military might or by political power or powerful persuasion, but in a child, in a childlike way. In Jesus, a son sacrificially given. A son who is the wonderful counselor. And in our staff meetings at the moment, we're reading through John's gospel. And as I was putting this sermon together, we, uh, we read in John 5, 19, where it says, uh, Jesus only does what he sees the Father do. And then later in John's gospel, in John 12, it says, I only say what the Father has commanded me to say. Here is Jesus, the wonderful faithful counsellor, bringing us God's counsel. All right, I got kind of caught up in that. <laughs> God Almighty, the embodiment of God with us, Emmanuel, the everlasting Father, God Himself in human form, dwelling amongst us, the Prince of Peace, the one who by His life, death, and resurrection has reconciled us to Himself and to God as our Father, and to one another in Christ, and is wanting to uh, reconcile the world with Him. One who is now seated at the right hand, whose kingdom is eternal, who was raised to life, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We often forget about the importance of the ascension, but it's the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And it was done not by human hands, but by the grace and the love of God, the zeal and the passion of God for His people, for all of us. And of course, passion is that word that we use when we talk about that last week in Jesus' life, leading up to His crucifixion, the passion of Christ, coming out of the passion that God has for us, His love, undeserved love for us. The great light has dawned in the darkness of our sin and in humanity, both individually and as a society and world. And it is the source of the greatest joy, the greatest joy, the joy of harvest, people coming to know Christ, being transformed, and of the battle won. Again, Bethany, my daughter, her favorite passage is, in your life there will be trouble. But do not fear, for I have overcome the world. The battle has been won in Christ. But like the extended time of Israel, we still live in the tension between the already, this new king has come, and the not yet, that it's not a fulfilled kingdom. Yes, the light has come, it shines, and it brings life to all who will recognize their need for God's forgiveness and turn to Jesus and be saved. We experience the peace and the prosperity, the righteousness and justice of the rule of God within us. God has done it. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. But we also live with the tension of the not yet. And I'm not telling you something you don't already know, because boy, if we've seen the not yetness of the world, we've seen it in this past couple of years. 
We still live in a world that, as John says, loves the darkness, a broken, sinful, hurting, and hurtful world that needs to know the light that has been sent in Christ. So Christ sends us out as light bearers, as lamps to show people the true light that has come into the world, to be ambassadors of the Son's kingdom and government. The one who is Emmanuel, God with us, is present with us and in us and reigns in us by the Holy Spirit. The one who is passion-filled for the people of this world calls us to be people who will take his love and passion to those around us. Not just to individuals, but to the society and bring transformation. In Jesus Christ, the light of the world has dawned. And in our present darkness, we are called to shine that light on the coastlines and the land and the city and the people around us so that they may indeed know the light that has dawned in the darkness. Amen? Amen. Let's quickly pray. Loving God, thank you very much for this wonderful prophecy, this six or seven hundred years BC, pointing us to the fact that you would establish your kingdom. We thank you that you have done it, not humans, but you have done it in a way that is just so God and uh, so wonderful. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, today I'd pray if there are people here who do not know you, that you would just reveal your light to them. We pray for our, ourselves as a church that you would help us to be light bearers in this world, to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. We pray this in your name. Amen.